It's the 4th of April, 2015, and this is episode 201. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Today, we're taking a look at two wallets and an app that are available now or coming soon. First, we check in with Chris Ellis of the currently crowdfunding and cleverly named Pro Tip Wallet that essentially sits in your browser and watches what content you consume. Then, at the end of each week, it suggests or automatically tips the people creating your content. It's pretty sweet. Lives in your Chrome browser. I think it's going to be a big deal. Then, we're joined by Joe Looney, creator of the just-released, open-source and free, LTB Companion Multi-Token Wallet for use in your Chrome browser. Basically, Joe re-implemented Counterparty as a CryptoKit-style in-browser tool, so it's got all the convenience of access to your wallet without switching to another window or tab, yet unlike a normal cryptocurrency wallet, it can handle dozens or hundreds of tokens in a single Bitcoin address. Because it lives in your browser, it's much faster than the web version of CounterWallet, and passphrases that have been created in CounterWallet can easily be loaded into the LTB companion. Or if you don't have a wallet, you can easily make one. I've been super focused on tokens, and usability has been just a huge issue. This is a major step forward. We talk about it. We end today's show with an interview from new LTB contributor Juan Galt, who interviewed Orion Martin, CEO of the currently crowdfunding app Sidekick Without the Sea. Orion tells Juan about his experiences with increasingly militarized police and a justice system unable to tell right from wrong. Sidekick records interactions and gets them online and off your phone immediately, and rings a lawyer via video call to represent you instantly. It's pretty cool. But first, pro tip. Let's get into it. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Chris Ellis, one of the founders of the upcoming project ProTip, which takes the concept of a wallet built into your browser and then adds some interesting twists to it for content creators and people who consume content. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You sent me a video about 12 hours ago, and I thought it was really cool. Tell us about ProTip. What are you doing? ProTip is a Bitcoin wallet in the browser. It uh, monitors the time that people spend on web pages, and if it finds Bitcoin addresses on them, it makes automatical tips by the end of the week. So it runs in weekly cycles. So it will actually tell you as soon as you get onto a web page, it will show up if there's a Bitcoin address, it will highlight it for you, and the app will light up in the browser itself. You can go out and find more information. And then it will just monitor um, all of the time that you spend. And at the end of the week, it will tell you your top 10 websites. It also allows you to subscribe to your favorites. It, of course, allows you to block certain websites. You can block by domain or you can block by the Bitcoin address so that you don't accidentally pay people you don't like. But actually, the most interesting aspect of this, I think, is the way it allows you to go from incidental sort of discovery as you're browsing the web through to subscription. So at the moment on Indiegogo, we have three main stretch goals laid out. We have our initial goal, which is $10,000, which we're the majority of the way there. And once we've received that, we're going to release the beta version by the 1st of May. In fact, we're we're currently ahead of schedule, so so fingers crossed. And then for $25,000, Leo and I will start to put in extra features. And one of the features we'd love to do is subscriptions. So out of the box, it will do a basic subscription model where you like someone's content and it will make automatic payments for the next 
four weeks, I believe. And then what we'd like to do is to start to put in messaging features. So at the moment, when you go to a website, it's basically a bait and switch, right? They wrap up some database in a shiny looking interface and they get you to get your email address off you. And then they put you into a sales funnel where you get lots of spam. Even if you didn't, didn't sign up for the newsletter, you still seem to get it anyway. And it's, it's impossible to unsubscribe. So what we're going to do is actually use your Bitcoin public key as your identifier. So you don't have to sign into websites anymore with your uh, email address. There's no need for it. What we'd really like to do to get this working is to have a messaging system. So you'll be able to, if, if somebody subscribes to you on, on your website, for example, in fact, I tested this last night. So the app does work with Let's Talk Bitcoin blog quite nicely. It detects all the Bitcoin addresses. And what can happen is you can start to interact with the people that have sent you tips and have opted in to subscribe. Then the next layer above that, which we'd like to do, this is going to cost a little bit more money, is to be able to do what we call like a soft paywall. It's often been described in the past as a velvet rope. So one of the things would be really nice is that for your most loyal audience out there, if you want to give them sort of backstage passes, as it were, or if you want to give them uh, access to exclusive content, we'll be able to make it possible for, for a little bit of JavaScript in the web page itself that allows people access to private links. And all of this is peer-to-peer and decentralized. The, we do not keep custody of your Bitcoins. Your private keys sit inside of your browser. They don't leave us. And any of the, the, the sort of the JavaScript that will run client-side, again, does not need to rely on our central server. We may consider doing hosting options to make it a bit easier for people. But this, first of all, we're building for self-hosting. That's really interesting, Chris. You know, it seems like oftentimes you and I are working on parallel paths without really, you know, interacting that much outside of these infrequent interviews. A lot of the things that you said there are things actually that we're already kind of building into Let's Talk Bitcoin, like the ability to have your identity be a Bitcoin public key. There's a lot of synergies here. So it's a Bitcoin wallet that is designed to essentially track what content you are consuming and where it finds Bitcoin addresses. It then, so it's, it's like going to give you a readout at the end that's like, you spent 10% of your time on this website and 5% of your time on this website in some sort of quantified fashion. Is that how it works? That's correct. Yeah, it just gives you a little league table of your top 10. So then at the end of the week, when I get that top 10, I then say, okay, there's, you know, a 0.1 Bitcoin in my wallet. I'm going to split this up to the various addresses that I, I patronize. And so then it will, the wallet itself will do that, or it just shows me and I can choose to send and maybe it helps me figure out the amount that I should send based I mean like explain to me the core functionality here the 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 other stuff that's all really cool and I'm very interested in that too but the core functionality I really want to understand this it does it automatically we didn't want to give uh, too much choice to the user because at this stage we just wanted to most people get uh, overwhelmed by choices if you give them too much and apple has really really shown led the way what it has at the moment is three profiles you can choose to use the app in, in one of three ways. You can be a generous tip, tipper, a cautious giver, or a discerning donator. So depending on how liberal you want the app to be when it starts collecting addresses. So at the moment, what it will do is it will divide up the, the, any Bitcoins that you have in the wallet based on how much you put in there, uh, spread out over the 10 people. And you can also pay early to your subscribers. You don't have to wait until the end of the week. You can check it as you go along. And if you want to, you can just tell it, okay, I really like these people, just pay them right now. So it gives you some granularity and obviously it allows you to, to blog. From the content producer's side, though, I mean, I am one, remember, I have my own YouTube channel. This is, this is born out of necessity. I'm building, you know, for myself as well as everyone else. 
Um, one of the things we, we really noticed is people would pay if they had an excuse. It's just that it's oftentimes not worth them getting the phone out of the pocket and scanning in the QR code. It's not worth them opening up the, the, the QT client because often that takes ages to load up. Right. The friction is still too great just to, just to do incidental sort of things. Correct. So what you've got to do is give people an excuse. This is really about connecting people to their tribes and their clans. It's, it, somewhere out there in the 3 billion people on the planet right now, there is a group of people who will really love what you have to give. And it's really a case of building the tools to help you discover who they are. And so it's about getting you from being a freemium user into a premium user so that you've got a nice little flow. And that's what the app does. It has a, a nice little slider button next to each person you, you found a, across, the, a, across the week. And it just lets you just click on the slider and it goes straight into your subscriptions and you can take them off anytime you like. Well, that sounds really cool. So what state is the app in now? It's in alpha. We've got 20 alpha testers. Big thanks to everybody who's involved, if you're listening. You know, I'm really excited because I've just started testing out the wallet and I'm going to do a tweet in a little bit asking who should be the first official recipient <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the coins, you know, who should I do it to? So we're pretty happy. Um, I think I'm going to be safe in saying that we're going to make perhaps a, a ch- overachieve our deadline. We're probably going to release an early alpha to some of the, the, the testers early on and some of the most loyal givers on the, on the Indiegogo pledges as well, because we're, we're sort of happy with the way it is. We've been really cautious. We, we are aware of the number of you know, scams and, and, and just failed projects in the Bitcoin space. So we underpromised deliberately. We kept the, the scope of this project really, really tight. We just wanted to do one thing really, really well. And we wanted to keep the crowdfund flexible so that it wasn't like an all or nothing, or we've got to raise 50,000 or nothing at all. We said, look, it, it, all we need really is $10,000. And given that, that Leo and I live in London, you know, our living costs aren't <laughs> cheap, but we do our best. And we, we don't, you know, we don't, we're not, certainly I'm not frivolous at all. I, I mostly couch surf these days. So I'm, I'm on a very low cost lifestyle. So that's why we can afford to do this. And this idea has been knocking around for years. And it's been something, you know, a few people reached out to us and said, oh, I had that idea ages ago, but nobody built it. And I think it just, it just takes a little bit of courage. A lot of the companies that we spoke to in the payment space, because we really wanted to allow people to subscribe with their credit cards. So it automatically buys Bitcoins with credit cards. And therefore, you don't have to keep loading up the wallets kind of thing. And we're, we're speaking to a few payment providers at the moment, and they're starting to come around to the, you know, this idea. But one of the things that came back is, you know, turkeys don't like asking for Christmas. This sort of, to a large extent, undoes their business model. And I think a lot of them can see that this is the way things are going to go. And I've met a few entrepreneurial people in the payment space that are seeing an opportunity privately as entrepreneurs thinking, well, I've got domain knowledge. I know how back system works and the credit cards and, and all of this kind of thing. But you have to remember that with credit cards, they're carrying around billions of dollars of baggage. You've got the insurance industry that has to prop up the chargeback systems. You've got what's called the four corners model. Try Googling that if you're listening. I mean, it's an absolute train wreck. And the whole thing just needs to be torn up and started again. But if there's, yeah, if there's any way of integrating into that system so that people that perhaps have been thinking about getting into Bitcoin, maybe some content producers out there, uh, who, who are a little bit unsure, this is the perfect excuse now. All you've got to do is copy paste a Bitcoin address into your blog. And it works with SoundCloud, it works with YouTube, anywhere where there's a description underneath your work. It will also check the HTML header as well in case there are any geeks listening. Don't worry, we have thoughts of that. It will, it will check the HTML header by default um, before it starts scanning the page and it will only pick the top three uh, addresses that it finds. So it's not going to, don't even bother trying to spam the comments. 
um, with your Bitcoin address, that's just not going to work. It puts users into the driving seat. It puts users, or, or as in the consumers, in the driving seat in terms of controlling their spending. And it also puts the content producers back in the driving seat too, because it gives them a way of controlling, you know, particularly journalists now. I mean, how many journalists are there left? Not many. Most people go off and get PR roles these days because there's more money in PR. But we all need the truth. I mean, we all need accurate information so that we can make better decisions day to day. So it is necessary. And a few journalists, I mean, particularly Jay Cassano at the Fast Company and Isabella at the FT, in fact, who's actually been very skeptical of Bitcoin before, even she likes this because I think people like that appreciate that often at work they're, they're sort of asked to write certain articles that are favorable to certain commercial interests. There's usually quite a lot of nepotism around. And as a result, they can't speak their mind and they can't speak freely. And I think even they realize, well, maybe I can make my own you know, blog. Maybe I could make, make my own living and, and just walk out on my boss. I think everyone's looking for an excuse to do that right now. Talk to me about the other two core features of the extension, the messaging layer and the access layer. So I think that those are the two core layers, uh, two others. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What we... Okay. So how are you accomplishing the messaging layer? And just to be clear here, you're not using counterparty or anything like that. This is all just built with Bitcoin? Yes. Yeah. So we've, we've just been hacking together some sort of really rough sort of prototypes. Uh, we think that we can get the messages at least initially into the Bitcoin blockchain, which I know will not go down well with the core dev team. But uh, we're just we're just kicking around at the moment where we haven't committed ourselves to, to exactly how we're going to do it. So you want to have a messaging layer, but that's something that that's a little bit further out in the future. Yeah, that's actually one of our stretch goals. Right. And so the access layer, when you're talking about that, is that also a stretch goal? That's correct. Although, okay, gotcha. So, so these are things that you would you, you've identified. These would be really valuable things to have, but you haven't exactly figured out how it's going to work. That's correct. We're pretty confident that we can see how it's going to work, and we've also been talking to some open source developers in the space as well. Actually, some outside of Bitcoin too, and we've been collaborating with them. and And we think that that we've got something that will work. Uh, we can see it works conceptually in our head. Right now, what we, what we need is the time and the space to really dedicate and drill down into, into using it. We know that on the 1st of May, we can release the first beta, which will do what we've already advertised it can do. But for me, remember, I'm building for myself and a lot of my colleagues that also run blogs. We're mostly getting the feedback from these guys. You know, we're, we're listening to it. And one of the things is you have to look after your core audience. You have to look after the people that have been most loyal to you, because often, the amount of money they are prepared to pay will easily offset everybody else's. So even if you've got a whole bunch of freemium users who just come along and take, take the content without paying, often you will have in gaming, for example, they're called whales. The 1% of the users end up paying for more than enough of the, the other 99. And so you do have this what's known as Pareto efficiency. You have this like 80-20 rule. And it's really about building something that helps you connect with those people without kind of annoying, annoying regular internet browsers with, you know, the, one of these annoying paywalls. It sounds like got a real project here. It's very interesting. And I uh, look forward to seeing it continue. Um, so you're running an Indiegogo campaign. Uh, do they accept Bitcoin yet? Is your campaign accepting Bitcoin or tokens of any kind? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, it's, it's, it is taking Bitcoins. We've actually got our Bitcoin address right up the top of the Indiegogo. We chose Indiegogo because it has a good track record for software. None of the other crowdfunding platforms did. And we didn't just want this to be about Bitcoin. We also wanted it to be about the ecosystem as a whole. So we wanted to reach a broader audience. And I'm really uh, grateful to all the people that have been on Indiegogo who have found our campaign and have uh, tipped us. So that's been really good because I wanted to take this beyond Bitcoin if I could. 
And so if people would like to get involved or want to, you know, really like your project and want to help, is there a website that they should go to or are there any particular roles or types of people who you're looking for? Sure. Yeah, you can go to my.protip.is or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Chris Ellis and I tweet very frequently. In fact, that's probably the best place to ask me any questions if you have any. We're looking at the moment, I'm looking for uh, open source developers ready for when we start rolling out of the code because it's, you know, the most important feature of open source projects is the community. And anyone who feels excited by this project, we're also interested in hearing from you if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you've got any work on websites like DeviantArt and perhaps you're thinking of turning your hobby into an enterprise of some kind, please reach out to us because we need your feedback to help improve this project for everyone. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Joe Looney, the creator of the LTB Companion browser extension cryptocurrency wallet. The core wallet functionality goes a little bit beyond something like CryptoKit, because in addition to being able to use Bitcoins with the LTB Companion wallet, you're also able to use not just LTB coin, but any type of token that is built on counterparty. What can you do with the wallet, Joe? To give a overview with the wallet. It's not counter wallet because it doesn't run using the core counterparty software that the developers put together in Python. With a Chrome browser extension, one of the unique things about it is it, it runs JavaScript, which is a client-side software, which gets a lot of criticism for weaknesses in security because when JavaScript is served to you remotely, going on a website and the website has JavaScript, it's a good distinction to realize with the way JavaScript is, is implemented in a Chrome extension versus how it would be implemented on a website. On a website, there's a security issue because if it's not a HTTPS or there, there's no SSL certificate, you can't be sure that you're getting the correct information. And because it's actually running on your local machine, there's always the chances that it could do something malicious. The problem with JavaScript is that you can do anything with it. And so if somebody gives you something and tells you it does one thing, but really it does another thing, then that can be really bad. When you go to a website and they give you JavaScript, you have to essentially trust them that it's going to do what they say and that it's not that there aren't any problems. And furthermore, you can be attacked through a man-in-the-middle attack, essentially, if they don't have something like SSL to encrypt the connection between the sender and the recipient. Otherwise, somebody can get in between and send you different information. That's not a concern, at least it's not a technical concern when you're talking about a Chrome browser extension, because the JavaScript is being served from within the browser itself. And so you can't be man-in-the-middle from your own browser, so therefore it's not a problem. You can think of it like 
Node.js, which is an implementation of JavaScript to act like a server. So it runs on the server. It's basically using all the benefits that come with JavaScript without worrying about a script injection or you being served a script that's not what you think it is. And I invite anybody that's listening to correct me if I'm completely off base. This is what I've, what I've learned through the process of putting this together and just in general working with JavaScript. Well, so let's talk about that because the LTB companion is a pretty functional application, but it is an early application in your career as far as this type of Bitcoin you know, tool is concerned. You've made some other tools for the LTB network just as an open source project basis, but this project, I think, certainly is, is your most ambitious to date. If you want a little bit of background, I've always been interested in programming and ever since I've had a computer from as far back as I can remember, I programmed. So QBasic, I remember getting Visual Basic when I was maybe 10, 11 years old, just kind of messing around with programming. My initial plan when I was younger was to become a software engineer. That changed a little bit and I ended up becoming a mechanical engineer. I never lost kind of the programming interest. So I've kind of tinkered around here and there. It's, it's a hobby. I mean, I'm not a developer by trade far as my nine to five job, but I've always had the interest and I, I like to do the research and understand why scripts are running how they run as opposed to just kind of copying and pasting what other people have done from open source projects. With the Chrome extension wallet, it really kind of came out of my interest in Chrome extensions in general. I put a couple together. I know I put the, I had put a calculator that calculates the exchange rate for LTB coin just using the Polyniac going rate and kind of getting that set up as a Chrome extension really piqued my interest as Chrome extensions in general and kind of how browser extensions can really enhance your desktop internet usage experience. I know I, I use a relatively old computer, a MacBook Pro from 2010, I think definitely doesn't run as fast as I'd like it to. So I always try to limit the amount of programs that I have running on my desktop. Uh, one of the great things about Chrome apps and Chrome extensions is that your browser kind of acts as the QT. So the program itself is, is pretty lightweight. It's, it's like a website, um, but it's, it's stored locally. So you have the advantage of you put the program on your computer. So it's kind of like a desktop program, except it runs through your browser, so you don't have to worry about um, a lot of memory usage and, and things like that. So the wallet came out of, actually, I think it was a project called Countersign. And that was a project that I think you undertook because the message signing feature of CounterWallet was broken since, basically, since CounterWallet came out. And since that was the only counterparty application, that presented a real problem for some of the stuff that we were trying to do with LTB coin. And I'm sure, or was it about other projects too? I think you nailed it. That was a problem that was bothering me for a while because you couldn't verify you, you owned the address. I mean, you could through sending a little bit, but it's kind of, it's kind of a clunky. Right. You're talking about block scan specifically. Block scan, before coindaddy.io, uh, block scan was the place where you could claim an asset. And nobody could claim assets because since you couldn't sign, you couldn't go through the verification process. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that is even fixed up to now. I mean, I think that function is still not working correctly in CounterWallet. 
Well, there are a lot of a lot of things and sometimes details get passed behind, but it's interesting to think, you know, would this project have come forward? How uh, would you've gone a different direction if that hadn't been, you know, the glaring problem that you're looking at? So, I just always think that those sort of connections are interesting. So, talk to me about making a wallet that enables people to use basically an unlimited amount of tokens. And I mean, clearly this is like, you know, you wouldn't be able to effectively use it with that many tokens, but it's a very different type of thing from just doing a straight Bitcoin wallet, it would seem. I mean, as far as programming, it's, it's not too much of an issue. I mean, I use APIs from CoinDaddy, so it's counterpartychain.io, to supply your list of assets. What it does is it, it queries that API with your public key, which returns a list, and then it just populates in the in the extension. I haven't really included much in there to to help you organize that. So it is just a long list of everything that's in your wallet. But as far as the technical nature of including a lot of tokens in a wallet, it's really not too too much additional work. The core and I'd say my what I'm most proud of with the wallet is the JavaScript implementation of counterparty transaction encoding. That was the, absolutely the biggest challenge when making this wallet. So you basically built uh, another implementation of the counterparty specification um, in order to create this wallet. Yeah, and I, it's definitely a implementation light. It only has a few functions, but it does what it's supposed to do. It can encode counterparty data, so a counterparty transaction, into a Bitcoin transaction. So far, it's just, just a send, just an asset send transaction. And then what it does is actually it's, it's exactly what CryptoKit does. They push the raw transaction once it's created and signed locally in the browser extension to the blockchain using actually blockchain.info's raw transaction API. It's just a bunch of characters that together represents your, your signed transaction. And that's what the actual Bitcoin network and the nodes see to recognize that a transaction has been sent. So this will be in the Chrome Web Store soon. And basically, this is completely interoperable with counter wallet accounts as it stands right now. So if you so I, I, I uh, you know, was very pleased that I was able to take a couple of my existing accounts and pop them in here and see the asset list just, you know, like get incredibly long because I, I have all of these assets on these various accounts um, without having to transfer everything over to a new account. So somebody would install the Chrome wallet it generates a new address for you at this point. To get you started, it'll generate an address randomly and you can choose to use that. You can create your own. That's all uh, available through the settings. But to get you started, it'll, it'll generate an address for you. The reason it works with CounterWallet is just because it's generated the same exact way. And you might have noticed that there's other services that use mnemonic HD wallets that you can't just use the same type of mnemonic over different services. And that's just in the, the way it's generated. It's definitely a big thanks to the guys at BlockScan. That was how I put together the countersign app is they put out an open source tool where you can essentially put in a mnemonic and it spits out the addresses with the private keys probably sometime in January or February came out. And that's really what kind of motivated me because I had gone down this road before trying to figure out, okay, so how does the mnemonic generate the private key, a tool like Brain Wallet or something to just use the private key and, and sign a message. But I 
could never get there. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't find where it was in the counterparty core client. And when Blockscan put that out, it was like, oh, oh, that's that's all it was. And so pretty easily, I was able to put together Countersign because I'd already played around with BrainWall a little bit, which is another open source tool, JavaScript tool that someone put together that's really great. And it's a, it's a really nice tool. And, and thanks a bunch to them for putting it out there. But yeah, the countersign is is really just a mashing together of BlockScan's tool for generating a list of addresses and private keys from a mnemonic and BrainWallet's tool of being able to sign messages. And countersign is an earlier extension that you created that is just message signing function. So you could take your counterwallet uh, passphrase, put it into the box for your where your passphrase goes, put in the message that you wanted to sign. I believe you also had to select the address that you actually wanted the signing to happen under because you could have multiple addresses associated with the same private key. And that functionality has all been folded into the LTB companion application as well. Yep, exactly. Countersign is is a Chrome extension also. You can download it from the Chrome web store, but you don't really need it if, if you're going to be using the companion wallet because that, that you're right, the functionality is it's just a tab in the wallet. Because counterparty transactions, because assets like LTB coin use Bitcoin, you actually need to have more than just LTB coin, for example, in order to send LTB coin. So one of the things that's different about the wallet and jumped out at me is that you have this, you can perform X number of transactions that shows up that is kind of based on your Bitcoin balance. It actually shows you how much it costs to make each transaction. 0.0001547 BTC per transaction. And that's done on a per address basis, not on a per wallet basis. Exactly. It really depends on how much Bitcoin is held in that particular address as to how many transactions, asset transactions you can perform. So Joe, you know, it's called the LTB companion, but you don't really have an affiliation with us. And this is kind of just what sparked the project. Can you talk about that? The project is open source. So I assume you're looking for some some security audits. Yeah, I invite anyone to take a look at the code. Let me know if, if something stands out that looks like it's not quite right. Like I said, it's it's, it's a hobby. I mean, I, I think it's pretty sound, but um, absolutely. I mean, any input would be great. Um, it's up on GitHub. So you can check it out. It's my username on GitHub is Loon3, L-O-O-N, and the number three. Um, and if you go there, you can see um, all the different Little projects that I put together on there. There's a handful of them, but you'll see the the LTB companion wallet. And absolutely, feel free anybody to to leave comments or if there's issues, definitely let me know. So, what's next on your horizon? Is there more work to be done on the LTB companion, or do you have another tool in mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this one could be refined. Um, I also put out uh, just a generic counterparty Chrome extension wallet. I kind of don't really expect to be modifying that much from where it is. I just kind of wanted a a real basic tool out there so people could kind of see how it was put together. I know the LTB companion wallet's going to have functionality that is specific to letstalkbitcoin.com and and all the stuff you guys are doing. The question you had asked me about how I'm not necessarily affiliated with Let's Talk Bitcoin, I kind of feel like I am in a very loose, unofficial sense. I mean, I've listened to you guys since the first episode. Well, I mean... We're not paying you to call it the LTB companion, and we didn't pay you to do this. We were like, hey, this is a good idea, but you really drove this project. This is your project. Yeah. Ever since I I really got back into programming a lot, 
in my spare time was really the whole open source nature of everything. And I really like kind of the way you guys are doing it with Tokenly and putting everything out there. I really think that that's really the way to go with software. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's just, why would you close source something and then have someone else remake the wheel? It, it doesn't seem the right way to do it if you're trying to advance technology and, and with cryptocurrency and that type of thing. You really got to put everything out there because it's a small, it's getting bigger and we all hope it's going to be really big, but it's going to take a lot longer if we don't help everyone out that's trying to put tools together. I plan to keep working on, on different types of tools like this. I put this together for you guys. You gave me a nice donation. That was greatly appreciated. It's really just, just kind of putting stuff out there. And, and it's nice to know that people are, are using programs that you created and they're helpful. And hopefully I can get people that know a lot more than me to look at it and improve it and, and kind of go forward from there. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the LTB Companion Wallet, which I'm really pleased to announce is available right now in the Chrome store. If you've never gotten around to setting yourself up with a counter wallet so you can receive your share of LTB rewards, this is the kinder, easier, and more convenient way you've been waiting for. To get your free LTB Companion multi-token wallet, visit letstalkbitcoin.com and follow the link. It's pretty obvious. Once it's set up, visit your letstalkbitcoin.com dashboard where you can enter your compatible address and add it to your account using the address verifier. That's all you need to do to start earning LTB coin rewards, except of course, use the site. When you're logged in, you'll receive LTB coin for every comment or forum post you leave, the upvotes you receive, new articles you visit, and of course, our flagship Magic Words program. The Magic Words program tries to solve the problem of tracking how many people actually listen to the show all the way through. During each episode, I'll say a specific word, and listeners like you have seven days to visit their account on letstalkbitcoin.com or to use the Magic Words interface within our iOS application and enter that word, proving that not only did you listen, but that you're keeping up to date. Of all the activities that can earn you rewards, entering Magic Words is the most highly valued. Speaking of Magic Words, for today, that'd be BUILD. That's B-U-I-L-D. BUILD. You've got until the 11th of April to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now we join LTB correspondent Juan Galt. Enjoy. I'm Juan Galt, and I'm with Orion Martin, CEO of Sidekick, which is an app and a company determined to end the police state. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Sidekick is and how you got involved in this project? In uh, 2008, a friend of mine was pretty savagely beaten by three cops in Concord, California. They really did a number on him. He was laying on the ground afterwards. He was still conscious. He overheard the three cops, and they were concerned that, some, that their assault had been recorded somehow. 
so they, they ransacked his truck and they were looking for anything, an audio recorder, a camcorder, uh, a cell phone that had been set to record. And once they didn't find anything, they were free to follow standard procedure, which is arrest their victim for assaulting police and resisting arrest. So I was at his trial. I'm not going to call it an eye-opener because I had already been to several trials before uh, somewhat similar to that. But this was one where the evidence was so clear-cut. The cops were the ones that had assaulted him. The cops had to fabricate a story. They couldn't keep their story straight. I watched as the jury actually found my friend guilty. So if you think about that, that's all 12 people. All 12 of those people ha had to say, yeah, he, he assaulted these cops, which really, that kind of blew me away. I, I thought that, he, that they were going to find him not guilty, right? That at least one or two of them. I, I just found myself asking afterwards, what would have had to have been different in order for those jurors to have reached a different decision? I concluded, well, there would have to be completely incontrovertible proof that the cops were the one who had assaulted him. That means audio and video. But then the, the problem comes up, which is that the cops specifically searched for that in his vehicle. So then I said the only way that it would work is if there were a device, and keep in mind, Smartphones were, were still pretty, pretty recent at that point in 2008. They'd been around for a little bit, but they were still in their infancy. And audio video streaming, video calls, that, that's, that stuff was, I mean, just coming out. Just coming out. And I said the only way it's going to work is if that data is somehow streamed from the recording device and stored at a separate location. That's the only way that it could be protected. And uh, for my friend, that would have worked because he's very knowledgeable in his rights. And um, he, he knows how to assert those rights and uphold those rights when faced with police intimidation. But most people don't. Most people, A, don't know their rights, and B, when it comes time to, to, to face that, that, that kind of intense physical threat from police, people tend to crumble, you know? And that's a normal reaction. And so I, I said, well, what would need to happen to prevent that? Well, there would have to be some kind of third party, somebody else who could step in and act as an intermediary for that person. Someone who also knows the law. Well, that's an attorney. And then it clicked. I, I, I just said, well, what if those two features were merged in a single app? Audio video streaming and an attorney on a video call on your smartphone so that you can just hold up your phone and have your attorney do the talking. That's really how the Sidekick app came about. You're working with MadeSafe, right? No, I'm not working with MadeSafe. I've just spoken with Paige Peterson, who is with MadeSafe. Sidekick could use MadeSafe as a decentralized storage for, all, for the massive amounts of data that's going to be coming out from the app. So we'll be storing that data on multiple secure servers, but those are centralized. We also are going to be working with MadeSafe. This is a perfect merger for them in terms of features. We'll be able to use MadeSafe as well to store that data, and that'll be completely decentralized. So there, there won't be any single point for the powers that be to come in and say, you know, we don't, we don't want that video released to the public. There's no one place that they can go and delete a video. That's not the only element that's decentralized. You mentioned something about the identities of each user being connected peer-to-peer -peer based on some sort of agreement that they, that they come to. 
this is what's so uh, revolutionary. I, I don't want to use the word revolutionary, actually, because it really just means going in a circle and coming back where you started. It's an evolution. It's what we're dealing with right now. And once MadeSafe comes out, that decentralized data storage, it's really the key link that will pair with the Bitcoin protocol to enable so many uh, anonymous, decentralized interactions that, which, that are currently centralized. So during the talk that I gave earlier, there were a couple of people who asked questions about, they, they were asking very legitimate safety concerns about having all this data in one place, not, not just the audio video data, but just the contact lists. That all goes out the window once you have the Bitcoin protocol being paired with decentralized data storage. Once that comes out, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really looking forward to that happening. One of the things you mentioned during the speech that caught my interest, and you mentioned it a couple of times, was uh, insurance. Uh, I wanted to ask you, sounds like you, you know a few things about that. How do you think you know, insurance companies can help bring freedom back? You know, I mean, right now they're kind of monopolized and regulated and, and, and controlled by the state, but it, it seems they're rather fundamental. That is an excellent question. Yeah. The only person who's ever asked me that. And uh, I get it. Insurance is boring. But here's the fact. Insurance makes the world go around. A plane can't take off. A cargo ship can't leave the dock. Police can't get in their squad car and go out and give tickets without insurance. None of, none of this is possible without insurance. When it comes to Sidekick, okay, so the, the main focus that I talk about with people is how Sidekick can help people during their individual encounters. It's really going to have a larger effect when it's used on a communal level, and that effect is achieved through the lever of insurance. I'm going to give the example of Maywood, California. So in uh, the beginning of June of 2010, the city council of Maywood received a notification from their insurance company saying that their, their insurance policy was being canceled. The primary reason given was the number of lawsuits against the police. So every insurance company is constantly running algorithms. So they're saying, at what point is it too risky to provide coverage to this client? And the interesting thing is, is that, that that line in the sand is only a handful of lawsuits for a given police department. And the thing is that it's not the police departments that have the insurance. It's the city or the county if you're talking about a sheriff's department, right? Or if you're talking about highway patrol, it's the state that that highway patrol is from. The insurance company will cancel the entire insurance policy. What that means is that if we're talking about a municipal police department, the only decision, the only choice that a city council has is to fire the police department. Otherwise, the entire city government will go out of business. They'll lose their jobs. When Sidekick is adopted on a large enough scale within a given community, the lawsuits will begin pouring in because Sidekick is basically a lawsuit generating machine. It's a nationwide network of attorneys who have all the evidence of the rights violations at their fingertips, and they are there remotely speaking and seeing the officer, and they're asking all the right questions. Most people, they, 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 they just don't know what to say. They don't know what not to say. They don't know the right questions to ask. The attorneys know this stuff. Say an attorney takes 20 calls over the course of a day, where... They get on a video call with 20 different people over the course of a day and represent them during a traffic stop, or they're on the sidewalk and they get stopped by a cop, or CPS agents show up at their house to kidnap their children. That attorney is going to be there asking all those questions, and out of, say, 20, they might get three or four calls that are totally valid lawsuit material.
Now, if you're talking about a city where enough people have the Sidekick app, then X percentage of the traffic stops in a given jurisdiction are going to result in a lawsuit. That means that it's only a matter of time, and it's actually a pretty short period of time, before the insurance company registers those claims, decides that that, that client is now too risky to insure, and cuts off the insurance policy. And this has happened in Maywood, California, Lincoln Heights, Ohio, New Miami. I think that's in Ohio as well. I actually have a video on uh, SidekickApp.com. That's S-I-D-E-K-I-K. There's no C in it. App.com. I just put a video up, and within that video, I have just a section of just news clips covering different cities who have had their police departments fired just because of lawsuits. And it's happened a lot more times than that. So the goal of Sidekick is to mass produce the Maywood, California situation, you know, on a much larger scale. And once those police departments are fired, that's the real critical opportunity. Because then you have a situation like you have in Detroit, where the city government is basically completely defunct. The police have said, even if you call us and you're being robbed, we're not going to show up. In other words, the cops are still getting paid, but they're saying that they're not even going to perform the most basic duties of their job description. There are many communities in Detroit now that have done this. They've gone for private policing. And the experience of private policing is the exact opposite of government policing because government police have no duty to protect you. If you watch Luke Krakowski's video, there's a man on the New York subway who is being stabbed. He's attacked by a madman with a knife. There were, there were uh, New York cops standing a matter of feet away just watching it happen. This guy managed to survive. I mean, he was really, really cut up, but he actually had to subdue this guy on his own. And he wound up suing the NYPD because these cops uh, failed to do their duty. Well, it turns out they don't have a duty to protect people. But private policing can be the exact opposite. And it fits so well with the voluntarist or anarchist or libertarian, whatever you want to call it, philosophy. Basically, voluntary interaction, uh, agreements, right? Society functioning as a result of mutually beneficial contracts. So a community can say, we will hire this, this private policing force. And if you, if you see somebody, like if somebody's breaking into somebody's house or somebody's being attacked, you have a duty to stop that. It's not just something that you should do. You actually have a duty to, to do that. And another thing is that these private police, they aren't working with CPS to go and take people's kids. They aren't going around busting people for pot. What, what I think is going to happen in the future is that Psychic will get adopted by enough people. There will be a handful of police departments around the United States where this works and that those police departments are fired. By the time that happens, the reaction for replacing the police, not with other government police, but with private police that are actually paid by and beholden to the people that, that, they're, that they're protecting and serving, that is how we actually phase out the police state. You're accepting Bitcoin for the crowdfunding. Are you accepting any other cryptocurrencies or, or will you be accepting them for your product? Right now, it's just Bitcoin. Anyone right now can go to psychicapp.com, go to contribute, and, there, and they'll, it'll be taken to a, basically a Bitcoin contribution page where I took all of the, they're, they're called perks on, on Indiegogo, the crowdfunding website. 
I took all those perks and I discounted each one by 10%. And I put that up on, on, on the Bitcoin contribution page. So anybody who contributes with Bitcoin will A, get a 10% discount from what they would, what they would have to pay on Indiegogo. And also, just like Indiegogo, each perk is actually a subscription to Sidekick so that when it launches, they'll automatically have a subscription to the service for a fairly long period of time. So people who contribute either with US dollars through Indiegogo or whatever, or through Bitcoin through the Sidekick website, they're not just giving their money away they're actually purchasing discounted subscriptions to the service as well as making that service happen. They're helping to create it. What stage is the project at right now? We had our first crowdfunding campaign late last year, and we raised enough funding to complete the entire first phase of app development. Stuff like a, a technical feasibility study, which is basically figuring out what is the most efficient and stable way to create every feature of the app and then have all those features work together. The first phase also involved the wireframing. So all the wireframing is done for the app. We have a fluid UI, which is basically, it's an app that you can navigate through, but the coding hasn't been done behind it. So it's non-functional, but we can see how, how the entire user experience is going to work. We also have uh, all the graphics are completed. That's the whole first phase of development, and that's, that's all completed right now. So the app company that we're working with, Zico, out of New Hampshire, ZCO, so ZCO.com, they're one of the largest and oldest app uh, software companies in the world. They're very, very good. So they're just standing by. We're launching our second crowdfunding campaign on Monday, March 9th. That's the Indiegogo campaign that'll be, that, that'll be launching. There's a tab on the psychicapp.com website called crowdfunding. It'll take people straight to the Indiegogo campaign page, and they can read through the profile. It has a lot more information than what's on the website. Do you have any feedback from attorneys or, or any other uh, potential service providers? It was a while back. It was really during the early days of, of getting this all organized. There were, two, there, there were two people that I was working with, and they knew a defense attorney in San Francisco. You know, he, he was given the complete breakdown. This is what the app, and he, he really just, he was so blown away by it. He's a criminal defense attorney, right? So to him, this is just, this is a dream come true. He would be able to have the evidence that he never has. He would also be able to remotely be there at the time that his client is having that interaction with the officer. It's, it, it, it changes everything completely. And he was really, really excited. And then what's really interesting is that a couple days later, one of his clients who was on parole was pulled over while driving through, through San Francisco. The officer who pulled him over, you know, ran his plates, knew that he was on parole and really started hassling him. Right. But what the officer didn't know is that as soon as the guy pulled over, he called his attorney, which is the, the attorney that, that, that we were speaking with. Instead of saying, okay, well, you know, just don't do this, don't do that. He, he said, leave the phone on, put it on speakerphone, and just put it in, 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 you know, down on the center console, right? And once the officer started getting really aggressive and threatening him, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and that to get you back in jail, the guy started panicking, and, and, and he looked down at his phone, and he said, hey, you know, what do I do? And the officer said, who are you talking to? And he said, I'm, I'm talking to my, my, my attorney. As soon as he said that, the officer, he, he just did a complete 180. He just said, oh, well, uh, you know, handed him back his you know, driver's license, paperwork. He said, oh, well, all your paperwork looks in order. Hey, have a good day. 
and he just he got back in his car and drove away. It's really interesting, really, really interesting. And that was just audio, and it wasn't even the attorney talking to the officer. When the psychic cop comes out, it's going to be com uh, just light years ahead of that. There is one feature that I've completely forgotten to talk about. Um, I really should have written it down and made sure to talk about it, and that's end call security levels. People kept on asking me, well, what if the cop just takes the phone? What if the cop just takes the phone? They can just shut the app off or smash the phone. Well, if they just smash the phone, there's nothing I can do about that. But I want people to realize if that happens, that's, it's an instant lawsuit. It's practically, I'm not going to say completely guaranteed to be one, but that's pretty much, you know, slam dunk lawsuit one, right? A uh, cop taking the phone and turning off the app is a very legitimate concern. So what I did was I came up with three end call security levels. And if people can go to the psychicapp.com website and look at the graphics, they scroll down to the bottom of the page, uh, right below the video, I have a, a rotating screen which has some of the app screens on them. And one of them is end call security levels. And there are three levels. One is no pin. So if somebody just taps end the session, end the call, it's over. Then there's a level up, which is a pin required. So everybody can, can come up there with their own four-digit pin. They'll put it in, and that's the only way that the app can be shut down. And then there's a third stage. I got the idea from uh, some of the new Bitcoin wallets that are coming out, which is two-stage two authentication. Every attorney will have their own pin. Every app user has their own pin if they want one. So any, any app user who wants two-stage authentication can make it so that even if a cop takes their phone and intimidates that app user into giving them their pin, right? Threatens them, right? If you don't give me your pin, I'm gonna beat the out of you. The app still cannot be shut down. The cop puts in that pin, it still requires the pin from the attorney to shut the app down. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by the LTB Companion Multi-Token Wallet. It's counter-wallet compatible, free like speech and like beer, and available now at letstalkbitcoin.com. Content for today's episode was provided by Chris Ellis, Joe Looney, Adam B. Levine, Orion Martin, and Juan Galt. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and Juan Galt. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.